The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to the B-Side for episode 1701 of our national conversation about conversations about race. Will you be my black friend? I'm Anna Holmes, here with some of my best friends are black author, Tanner Colby. Hey, Tanner. Hey, Anna. And also joining us, reporter and documentary filmmaker, Fazilat Aslam. Hi, Fazilat. Hi. Glad you're back on the show. I'm very happy to be back. I'm just going to call you Faz That's instead, as you, as you said before That's we started taping. Fun. Okay. On our last episode, we discussed what it's like to be considered someone's black friend, willingly or unwillingly, especially when people want to discuss things related to race. Listeners of the show had a lot to say about this particular episode and help, and here, excuse me, to help us sift through many of our audience's reactions is our loyal and lovely producer AC Valdez. Hi, AC. Hi. What did I do to earn the lovely part? That's really sweet. Of I you. was just. Well, you're not. You're not. You're not unlovely. Aww. I wanted some alliteration to be all day. I wanted some alliteration. <laughs> Loyal and lovely felt like a nice match. I think you're lovely, AC. <laughs> Thanks, Tanner. You too. <laughs> So we had so many responses to this last episode that I feel really bad leaving any out. So what I'm going to do right now is go with a grab bag of bits and pieces from a bunch of emails. I apologize that we can't get to everybody. This was a hell of an episode and a hell of a lot of responses. So here we go from Tanya. I understand that it's not your job to educate me, but as Tanner tried to point out, modern white Americans may want to break the mold, but are stifled by not knowing how. White guilt can only carry one so far. There are a good chunk of white people in their 30s and 40s who do think differently than previous generations. We voted for Obama. We wanted hope and change. Don't write off our potential to make a difference just because we don't know what we should do next. And Tanya asked for suggestions and solutions. Fortunately, Andrea emailed us with a book recommendation, Robin D'Angelo's What Does It Mean to Be White? Developing White Racial Literacy. I don't know if any of you have read that one. I have not. I have not either. I have not. Tanner, next up. <laughs> what? <laughs> you got to read it. <laughs> well, uh, yeah, but I, you, you're the one who needs to read it. I know what it means to be white. I got it down. <laughs> okay. All right, fair. okay. All right. Well, I know what it means um, to be half white. Yes, you do. So, Fazilat, that's you. Right? I, yeah, I have no idea what it means to be white. <laughs> yeah. There you go. <laughs> Just colonized. Yeah, exactly. Oh, my God. Ooh. <laughs> Teresa wrote in to say, if people of color don't want to shoulder the burden of dismantling white supremacy and also don't want to convince white people to do it, how do we get there? When I imagine a world in which liberal white people can approach their conservative counterparts to try and do the convincing, all I hear in my head is derisive laughter. I mean, can you imagine Rush Limbaugh's response to Rachel Maddow in a conversation like this? Point taken. And Damon also wrote in, On the last show, Tanner's point about we as minorities having to do the work of changing white supremacy, while maybe offensive, was a valid point. I agree that it shouldn't be our responsibility, but unfortunately, who else is going to keep pushing change forward? I'm sure all of you have read or heard this quote before, but I think it still applies today. Power concedes nothing without a demand. It never did. And it never will. So, listeners, I apologize for not being able to get everybody in there. There's a lot more coming. Thank you. And uh, responses from the uh, the discussants, please. Yeah, I mean, that that's kind of what I said. Nobody should have to do it, but who else is there? To be fair, I think you said that they should do it. And then, you, and then, and then later you backtracked and said that they shouldn't. That, 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 you know, I feel like you made a pretty blanket statement. That said... Well, I don't know. We have three listeners there. I 
took their points as well. I don't always agree with them. I still concede that I don't think it's the job of people of color to educate white people on both racism, but also how to dismantle it. I think that certainly people of color can assist in that. But the if if you don't show us, how will we know is an admission of any lack of agency and, again, feels lazy to me. Well, I think there's a middle ground, right? I, I don't think it helps to say white people figure it out on your own because it's not working, right? It's it's never mm-hmm. worked. But you also don't want to have to be a representative for your race or, or simply as a minority anytime someone ignorant asks you a question. And I think on, a, on the show you actually said it's easier when someone's done at least a little bit of research to have mm-hmm. a conversation with them. But even if they haven't, perhaps you can just say, you know, read a book, read this book. And I, I have no problem. And I'm confronted all the time with people who ask me questions about ISIS. Like, like you know, <laughs> I'm, a cult, I'm culturally Muslim. My name is Fazila Daslam. And people ask me questions about ISIS like, like one i'm somehow responsible and two like i'm the authority Mm -hmm. so you know rather than tell them to piss off which is obviously what i would like to do i you know it it's unfortunately yes it's i don't know if it's my responsibility but if i don't do it who else is going to do it is there a way to answer that sort of question that um is respectful, but also points out at the same time that that there's an assumption there that that you know everything about ISIS. I mean, is there a way to, to, to do it to both point out the kind of absurdity of the request, but also to answer the question? I don't know. Yeah. I think in the past, I really have just taken the opportunity to try and answer the question as best I can. And first and foremost, by saying that this is not a representation of my religion mm-hmm. or my culture, mm-hmm. but let me tell you a little bit about what is, you mm-hmm. know? Mm-hmm. And and it's not fair, but that's reality, you know? Life isn't fair. And I think when someone comes up to you and asks you a question about something because of the color of your skin or your religion um, or even your class— I personally try and take it as an opportunity to convey my experience to them. Mm-hmm. You know, forget education. Just just try and create a little bit of empathy between two people and share my experience with something. Um, share my experience with something they may be completely blind to mm-hmm. and may have never experienced in their lives. Mm-hmm. Right. No, I think that that's definitely the, two, the way to do it. In that, you know, when I've gone around and talked to people. Uh, uh, very rarely was I talking about race. I was talking about them. Like, what's your story? Who are you? Where are you from? How, what's your experience? And I find people are usually more than willing to have that conversation. People, A, people like talking about themselves, and B, people like that, you know, you're interested in them. If you go around asking about race, like, what's up with ISIS? And just like questions like that. But who are you? What's your story? Where are you from? Then you learn as much about being Muslim in America than you will asking What's up with Muslims? Which is just sort of such a broad general question that can be taken the wrong way or doesn't lead to. But, but does anyone really ask the question, "What's up with Muslims?" I mean, <laughs> well, well, what's up with ISIS is is a, is a ty- is a similar, you know. Yeah, but is, more is, right. But that's the thing, right? More people are going to ask me about ISIS than perhaps you and right. Anna, mm-hmm. right? And that in itself <clears throat> is the issue that because right. 
because of my name, because of my religion, people are going to ask me about ISIS like I somehow, you know, know more than someone right. else. And even though that's a real issue, and yes, on some level it's offensive, mm-hmm. you have to combat it somehow. And I right. think shutting people off as much of a right that is of yours, mm-hmm. where does that get you? And, yeah, go ahead. I was just going to say that I think you should do what you feel you can do in that moment. And if, the, and if what you can do is to answer them as best you can without legitimizing the question itself or maybe the ignorance of the question. Great. But if you're also not in the mood for it, then you can just refuse. Well, refuse sounds a bit strong, but, you know, decline <laughs> to answer the question or answer it in a very kind of brief way. I mean, I, I, I just don't think that it's it's up to people of color to... Rather, I think that people of color should should be able to take a day off from that sort of stuff. Absolutely. Um, <clears throat> sorry, Tanner, you were going to say? What was I going to say? I forgot. Anyway, well, we can go right. on to the next step, because yeah. apparently there's lots. So, what, okay. AC, well, you know, I'm curious to know why you presented those three responses together. Is it because they were similar? They all seemed to be kind of tossing back and forth the same question of, do people of color take the initiative do they not do white people deconstruct white supremacy or you know what's the role of people of color in it mm-hmm. um i don't think there's a good answer to this i really 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 don't and i think the passionate responses that we got from listeners actually really really reflect that because nobody's got these answers and that actually furthermore the um other great majority of responses that we got was about just how passionate you and tanner got in that conversation and this is something that comes up periodically anyhow, and I think we probably haven't addressed it enough in past episodes, although we tried to make light of it at the end of one of the recent episodes. Wait, we haven't addressed um, what? We haven't addressed that Tanner uh, and I get passionate? Yeah, that you guys get passionate. Pass- sounds like sounds it's not I know. unusual. Yeah, I don't know if passion well, is the okay, right word. Okay. It, well, irri- you might at one, at times or one time or another get irritated with each other, and that's okay, But we though. don't. Well, maybe yeah. you do. I don't. Anna, Anna. <laughs> Listen, I mean, there are times when I get irritated with Tanner, but like, let's be very clear, like it isn't like long lasting and I'm sure he gets irritated with me, no, especially don't. when I'm getting irritated with him. But it's, I don't. Not, it's not something that I think about an hour and a half later. It's funny because sometimes we, well, you know, I'm not, I'm not, the, I'm not privy to the emails that come in. I'm, I'm, they're not coming into my inbox. So the only way that I hear from listeners is when they tweet at me. And sometimes they tweet at me and, you know, they are complaining about Tanner or they're mad at me because I was being irritable with him. And But there seems to be an assumption that Tanner and I really dislike each other, which is very strange to me because I, 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 I'm not afraid of conflict or arguing. And it doesn't and conflict or, and arguing don't mean that I feel negatively towards or about a person. Um, usually when I feel really negatively towards a person, I don't say shit. <laughs> well, <laughs> but, no, but yeah. people, listeners at home project their own yeah. thing onto what we're doing here. And, and that f- for them, racial conversations are so fraught and there's all these, these politics and, and rules that are supposed to accord it that we kind of do away with here, which is kind of the point of the show. But like, you know, we get so many emails a lot of from white people that Tanner needs to shut up and stop white splaining and mansplaining and da 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 because they've in, they've internalized well I'm white I'm not supposed to say anything. Da, da, da. Oh, I mean I mean conversely well, we we also get ones about people cutting each other off as I just did. To well, but Tanner, but so. but then I went to brunch with a bunch of my friends who listened to the show and they Uh-oh. were like they were like Tanner everybody on that show just gangs up on you and it's not fair. <laughs> and so like people people bring to it. What, are these what, are your white friends? Yeah, these are my white friends. <laughs> and so. 
you know, it's just like, uh, and it's part of the problem of why these conversations are so fraught out in the real world because you can't have them like real conversations. No, but listen, conflict is a natural part of life, no? Sure. Like, right. who, who do you not have conflict with? Is there anyone that you love that you don't have conflict with? So how can you not expect to have conflict in... I didn't uh, say I loved him. <laughs> <laughs> no, but you know, conflict Ouch. is a natural part of every relationship. Right. And, and well, sadly, a lot of part people, of discussion. Yeah, but a lot of people really hate conflict, though, it, to the point where, you know, they act very passively. I mean, passive aggress- aggressively. I'm not saying that I'm always comfortable with conflict, but I'm comfortable with it in the context of this right. being in the studio and the co- context of sitting across from Tanner or next to him and having these conversations. And usually I, well, I try, I don't always succeed, to, like, own my feelings. Like, I don't say, Tanner, you're such an ignorant POS, which is not what I think of me either, by the way. But I'll say I'm really frustrated right now because, or this is irritating me. Like I, I try and make it more about me than about him. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not saying I always succeed, but that's that's one way to have conflict and you know have a, a charged atmosphere, but but not to make it feel like there are weapons being thrown back and forth. So, yeah. Okay. That said, okay, let's go on to this caller who did not leave a name from Wisconsin. This is a black person living in Wisconsin, and I just wanted to say that uh, the episode was a really good discussion. Um, I think that there were some things that could have been added. Two big things. One, people are tired. People are extremely tired. That's why Gene, Anna, Aisha, Baratunde, and so many others who are guests on the podcast have probably not liked being racial confessors. One of the solutions for people like me who are not in national conversations, living in an area that has much less than 10% black people, uh, is to be that confessor for you. To encourage people to talk to people who are in their neighborhoods, who are their friends, and to make friends if they really want to get their cookies is an extremely important part of making sure the conversation has a tag team, like tag team wrestling type system around how we can have these conversations and be the voices that we need to be in the conversation. Um, and I also want to give uh, Tanner a little bit of a pass and also a little bit of a lesson of you get a pass on all the things you said about white people to me um, growing up in Tennessee, now living in Wisconsin, that if the power is there, you have to go where the power is and change the force of the power. If that lies with white people, you have to do that in some way, shape or form, even though it's not fair, it is racist. The systems have been racist and, it's not a surprise to most people of color that that's the way they are. Um, the second would be uh, you got to make sure that you talk a little bit less so that Anna doesn't get so prickly with you. Um, we all, included myself in this, uh, pick up on little things that make us feel uncomfortable and people are explaining it a long time. So um, I think all of you still deserve kudos on kudos on kudos for having a podcast. Um, don't feel like it's all on you. Pass some of that to us. I'm ready to have those conversations with people near me, and I want to have them. Thanks. Wow. I feel like I, that made me a little bit verklempt. Like, like that was that was a... That was very sweet. That was a really nice yeah. voice memo. Yeah. Um, I'm touched. And also... I'm passionate. <laughs> well, also, I would assume that the, that the caller who d- didn't give his name... Um, I think he said, do you say black man from Wisconsin? Is right. described himself? I'm sure we can find him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, 
you know, it's it seems like there there might be even more work for someone like himself who 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 does live in such a white area as opposed to me who lives in you know very diverse New York City. I appreciate his acknowledgement that people are tired, and also I admire his energy and committing to having those discussions. So I feel like I need to step it up. <laughs> if he can do it, I can do it. Hey, see what else we got. All right. Next, I'm going to go to Josh. Hey, folks, this is Josh, a listener since the first episode and certified white guy. First of all, I wanted to say thanks for the show and episode as it's been really important as a reminder for all the ways to screw up conversations with people that I know and don't know. What started me wanting to record what's about to turn into a very long message is to say that Tanner is wrong about educating whites in their 30s and 40s. I'm on the brink of 40, and let me say that while 20-year-old me didn't care, 30-year-old me was mildly aware, 40-year-old me is, as mainstream moderate white people go, pretty woke. I put air quotes on woke there since there's no video to show you. <laughs> now, I haven't read the full syllabus of Baldwin and so on beyond the basics like Invisible Man and Malcolm X, and someone really should put together a list of all the books we should read, <clears throat> Tanner. But sometime <laughs> in my early 30s, something shoved a crowbar into the door of my white worldview bubble and thrust it open, and with a little help of the world, I've been slowly prying it open ever since. When I roll into my next decade, I definitely hope to be an increasingly better ally, or at least try to. Remember, we're not going after the racist redneck with the Klan cape and the rebel flag. You're going after the caviar gauche that likes Doctors Without Borders, but hasn't really thought about why going to the Starbucks in Harlem is a bad idea when there's a black-owned coffee shop across the street. You're not moving the outer edge. You're chipping away at the middle. Tanner, white people do have the tools to convert. Look at what W. Kamal Bell and Adam Mansback did with the Whites Against Trump hashtag. That topped Twitter's trending topics for a few days and got people talking on CNN. Did it win the election? No. Did it make a few people listen? Probably. Tanner's own book he did with two live crews, Luther Campbell, where they tell a story about the destruction of the black neighborhood in Miami will open the eyes of anyone that reads it. It got me. Frankly, I think there's a path to lead people down to open their eyes, but that's for another episode. Tanner asks, why would white people dismantle white supremacy? For some of us, it's just because it's wrong. However, just because a lot of white folks are clearly not going to want to, it doesn't mean we just say screw it and don't do anything, because we don't need all of us to start working on it at once. Just some would be a good way to start. We can chip away aspects of it that are glaringly wrong. It's not going to be done in one fell swoop. If we diminish the effects of white supremacy, that's how we destroy it. With each law we pass, each place we make Black Lives Matter as much as white lives, the gap lessens. As people of color become a larger percentage, and eventually majority of the country, this change has to happen anyway. The better we handle the dismantling, the less painful for society as a whole it's going to be. And fine, certain white people did indeed produce Trump, as Tanner asserts, by about 70,000 votes. They did so in a perfect storm where a racist populist demagogue ran against the first woman candidate who had a propaganda machine, Fox News, that was created in 96 to badmouth her and her husband, talking crap about her for 20 years, and she lost him by only 70,000 votes in the electoral college system and won the popular vote by 3 million or so. And she did so with the media that covered him and talked profusely about him potentially making a change for the better in her stupid email server constantly. And they let him slide on tax returns and corruption while talking about Goldman speeches and never properly fisking the absolute bull being served about the Clinton Foundation, which, incidentally, has helped millions of people color globally. And all of that was only after a bruising primary against another populist, which she also beat by millions of votes, who was also favored by mostly white men who spent months bad-mouthing her corruptness while the media stood by complicit talking about her email. So maybe white people's feelings got us into this mess, but only because we didn't point out their privilege and racism earlier. So yeah, blame Trump's win on white people's feelings if you want. But you have to ignore a lot of other stuff, and particularly that a majority of total votes cast went to Hillary. So to sum up, white folks do need to educate the white folks we can of any age. We're here. There's lots of us. Let's try. And the white folks we can't reach, fuck them. <laughs> he needs a radio show. Go, no, Josh. I was, was going to say, Josh, uh, I, I will, I'm having a lot of feelings, a lot of positive ones, a lot of very warm ones. He was great. In awe ones. But since he was talking mostly to Tanner, let's 
let Tanner respond. Well, no, I think he's he's talking about, I think, what you might call the exception to the rule, which is, you know, I, I look at race, people, white people want to deal with races is kind of like how, you know, alcoholics in a sense, in that you have to choose to want to do it for yourself. And he talked about his own self-realization and mm-hmm. wanting to, to learn more, which very much what I did. I wanted to learn more. And, and so I did it. That is perfectly plausible. What I was talking about in the other instance is just starting from zero from with someone who's 40-year-old knows nothing. I've had many, 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 many of those conversations. And again, I think people, I got a lot of these responses on Twitter too. Wait, wait, wait. Pe- people, sorry, what? People took it to what I was saying about it being harder to start with older people. It's, I mean, it's kind of just like, can't teach an old dog no tricks. It's it's a saying that's been around forever. That's not saying that you can't do it with anyone, that, that everyone over the age of 45 is hopeless. But it is true that the older you get, the more set you get, you get in your ways, on average. And that if you, the best thing you can do, not that you shouldn't try and educate yourself for something or other, but the best thing you can do is look to the next generation. And I honestly believe that for for most people. Yeah, I guess I don't think it's an either or. I think I think you can both look to the next generation and try and influence the quote unquote current one. I think what I, I was taking issue with was the assumption that there's a certain calcification among people who are pretty relatively young. Like you said like 35. I think you just threw out that number on the show, which felt... I, I could understand a little bit more if you'd said... Uh, 75-year-olds are unlikely to, you know, um, have their opinions changed that much. But but I do think that they're, despite the fact that I feel very pessimistic a lot of the time, I do think that people are more malleable than we give them credit for or can be. And, and, and even if you're not starting from zero, and again, I think the caller kind of mentioned this, I'm not particularly interested in trying to change the hearts and minds of the person with the rebel flag, et cetera, et cetera. But it is the people in the middle, and, and, and I think that... Other white people who are trying to make a difference among their cohort and milieu can just model what that is without having to be preachy about mm-hmm. it and still have an effect. What, what I'd be really curious to know is how the listener, I wish he had said how he kind of came to his. Right. Or like how, how his feelings evolved over, over, over time. But, you know, I would like to think that we all get kind of more thoughtful as we get older, right? You get more thoughtful, but I, I feel like if you can raise children with it, you know, through osmosis almost as their lived experience. I just feel like as you get older, in many ways, you know, your lived experience becomes, your world gets a little smaller. It's about your kids. But how about this? Maybe it's not about your kids. It's about, it's it's someone about children. Like some of us don't have kids. So it's about like how we, how how we talk to children in general, whether we have them or whether they're just in our lives because they're our friends' kids or our nieces and nephews. And I take your point, but I, I don't think that that's the only I don't think children should be the only focus. No, 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 no. I don't no, think children no. are, fu- are, are our only future. I think that the, the, the people in the present are also our future as well. But let me let our guests talk. Well, I, I guess my issue is making a blanket statement about people based on their age, right? I absolutely get your point that the older you get, the more set in your ways that you get. But I also think to to doubt someone's capacity based on their age is, I just don't agree with it. You know, I, in my work... I really spend a lot of time with people one-on-one and tend to work with them sometimes for years at a time. And, um, you know, the oddest things can change people's minds and change people's perspectives. I think it's a matter of how you go about it, the angle at which you approach things, and sometimes it's just the right person, you know? Mm. I've been reading this article on this uh, black blues musician who befriends members of the KKK. <laughs> have you have you guys seen this? No, no, no. Um, 
this this guy apparently for decades, his name is Daryl Davis, has been uh, befriending and converting members of the Ku Klux Klan. And I'm not sure if there's, I think there's a film about about him and his, and his work. But again, this goes back to our earlier conversation. Like, who are the people who are actually committed to doing this? Because mm-hmm. it's not going to be easy with everyone. But mm-hmm. I think there's a person out there who can reach a certain group of people and there's another person out there who can reach the KKK and there's another group and there's another person out there who can reach Trump voters, you know, but to discount people just because of their age, I think is, it's, it's just not, I just don't think that's real. Yeah, you know, it's interesting because I, I, I do think with young people and my definition of young people would be maybe people in their, in their teens to late twenties that oftentimes they are much more set in their ways or that they think that they know everything and then undergo a transformation as they as they hit their 30s that I think is very humbling for them and necessary for the rest of us. <laughs> I think it's and I think it's a twist on the whole youth is wasted on the young idea, which mm-hmm. is that you are more set in your ways, I think, as certainly as a college student and, and, and maybe in that era. But as you get older, your ability to your bandwidth to consume new information. We get paid. It's our job to consume new information, right? You travel around the world making documentaries. Well, I would, you, I would still, I would still do it even if I didn't get paid. But yeah. Well, right. But also, we we are of a particular class mm-hmm. of educated people who mm-hmm. we would be doing this even if we get paid to do it. But we also get paid to do it. Take an average person working two jobs plus you know moonlighting at Walmart while taking care of three kids to tell them that you know read a book is really. I don't know. It just depends on the situation. I can't, I'm, I'm not, I'm not, you know, I understand that it's hard for people to make space in their lives for things that they're not accustomed to making space for, but that doesn't mean it's impossible. I think we have um, to have more hope than that. Mm-hmm. No, like I, I think one has to have more hope in people than to believe that because of how many jobs they work or what their limitations are, um, limits their capacity to feel empathy for other people. And I, again, I get what you're saying. Like someone who works multiple jobs and is disenfranchised and is exhausted is not going to have the same desire to uh, absorb information as the three of us. But I think there well, is they, a way to reach those people. They may not. They might have the same desire. They may not have the same capacity. Right. But I wouldn't say they didn't. They don't have the same desire because I don't. We don't know what's in people's hearts. And I am fully confident that there is someone who works a lot harder than I do, who has a lot less of what I have, who has a lot more distractions than I do, and who is still better at <laughs> at consuming and edu- information and edu- educating him or herself than I am. So anyway, I'm, I think I'm just feeling lazy lately. Do you want to go on to the next uh, yeah, listener? Yeah, let's go on to the next. Uh, we're going to go on to an email, but I did want to before we do that, uh, I'm glad you brought up Daryl Davis, Fez. There is an exquisite podcast. The episode is called The Silver Dollar. It's on a podcast called Love and Radio. I recommend everybody go check it out. And it is about that blues musician who goes oh, cool. around converting the KKK. Now, you were reading members. a piece it's about astounding. him? It's mm-hmm. astounding. There was something on The Daily Beast about him. And uh, I think he's one of probably many examples of people who are changing things in their own community Mm -hmm. you know Mm -hmm. i mean i i can say personally everyone that i engage with i hope has a slight different idea of what it is to be a muslim or even what it is to be a minority or what it is to Mm -hmm. be a woman than they did before Mm -hmm. they met me right Mm -hmm. and that's i feel like that's my responsibility as a human being Mm -hmm. but i think it's incredible that this man has 
that capacity for compassion. And I don't think everyone does, yeah. right? And I don't think everyone should be expected to. Mm-hmm. But there are people like him who do. And yeah. I think they should be supported. And I think they should be lauded because I think compassion is an incredible thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it's incredible. And I think he probably has to counter a lot of hate and aggression and conflict in order to do what he does. But look, because of him, I think a lot of other people are benefiting, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I'm going to read the piece when I'm... When we're done today, yeah. So onto this email from Javier. Anna, I was just listening to the latest episode of your podcast about race, and I had to pause it real quick because something that either you or one of your guests said fascinated me, and I think this was Tanner. It was the mental exercise of imagining where you stand in a class war versus a race war. Mm-hmm. I then took it upon myself to perform this mental exercise, and it was kind of scary. <laughs> I'm a Latino cisgendered straight male who just turned 30 last month. I'm college-educated in international relations, low-income, and I currently live in Boston, although I'm originally from Miami. I'm also a Navy veteran. I'm what I guess could be considered white Latino, as my mother is a white Cuban and my father is Chilean, but of Italian descent. Now, this last part is very important, as I resemble him most ways. I have black hair, hazel eyes, and olive complexion. So, with enough exposure to the sun, there is no hiding my brownness. This hasn't deterred my white, blonde-haired, and blue-eyed girlfriend whom I've been with for five years. What do I do in a race war? More importantly, with whom should I feel safe? Who will see me as the other? As the country becomes more diverse, it becomes increasingly difficult to disentangle all these threads, particularly for Latinos and those of mixed race, ethnicity, and background. Warmest regards, Javier. I'm not sure that I have that I have an answer to a question. I mean, that I, I appreciate the sentiment that he's putting across, but I'm not sure that I have an answer to anything. Jamel Bowie actually put it best when he said, are, are we really going to become a majority minority country or are we going to become a country where there's a whole lot of white people with the last name Rodriguez? And that's what you have to ask yourself. And then you, this election has sort of thrown things sideways, which is where you have a lot of people who people of color who are very much married to their their ethnic group and their identity that they want to stay with. You have other people who maybe who are mixed race, maybe who have assimilated, who just don't feel that strongly about their ethnic identity one way or the other. You have white people like myself who aren't that attached to whiteness anymore. If we have mixed race people in our family or whatever, it's like, great, fine. We just not really an issue. We're just not really thinking about it that much. And then you have the this this faction of Trumpist Americans who are very much about whiteness, who are very much about you know white identity and white culture because they bought into the lie of that that, that whiteness you know, means something other than just a set of rules to decide who gets power. And so, how all those groups are going to shift out? If you're a person of color who has a lot of money, are you going to? If there's a race war, are you going to? Go and, you know, <laughs> get on the battlements to fight the establishment. If you're Jay-Z or Beyonce, or, you know, I don't know. I, I sort of divide whiteness these days. I into, know exactly what Jay-Z and Beyonce would do. Well, Jay-Z and Beyonce are a bad example <laughs> because, yes, they would definitely join the battlements. But, you know, and then, you know, white people are sort of falling into these camps of sort of NASCAR whiteness and NPR whiteness where you have this, you know, real America whiteness and then you have this urban coastal elite whiteness to the extent that that's an accurate characterization that the media is playing with. I don't know if it is. So I just, to quote uh, Raquel, it's just not binary anymore. So if you had a race war, it would almost be like The Hobbit where you have the Battle of the Five Armies, where 
It's it's not one or, or the Game other. Game of Thrones or Game of Thrones. Yeah, it's like seven houses going to war these days <laughs> because. Yeah, I mean, I'm not even sure that one can even divvy it up into like even seven houses. So much of this stuff blends into it, into into other things. That, mm-hmm. for example, I don't think that pe- white people who voted for Trump are broadly interested in being white people in the very conscious way that you intimated they are like i think there are plenty of people who voted for trump who like yourself don't think about it that much because they're not because they're not forced to but right. but but they're not actively thinking about the white race the protection of of, of whiteness i don't know that they're that sophisticated well i think there's <laughs> there or unsophisticated yeah. is the case maybe yeah no i think the people who are thinking about it consciously like your alt-right richard spencer type people that's a very small group but there are the the people who are on a very subtle level just feel threatened by mm-hmm. the rising tide of brownness in America, even mm-hmm. though they couldn't even articulate that to you if you asked them. What's often funny is that, like, when I hear about people who are you know, who are supposedly threatened by the rising tide of brownness, it often it's often coming from people who don't actually live around any brown people. So, right. where are they getting this impression that there's a rising tide of brownness? Is it because you know some network executive happened to let you know one more black show than than the network usually has on the air i mean like what <laughs> i'm just i'm just not i'm always kind of curious as to like where are these no I, I mean i think what it basically is is that there are more interracial relationships than mm-hmm. ever before right and then mm-hmm. the 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 makeup the racial makeup of mm-hmm. america is changing mm-hmm. and i i think there's a lot of reaction to that which again the 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 social bubble that I exist in you know you can't think of it you have an interracial relationship and it's like yes Mm -hmm. another one you can't wait till everyone's you Mm -hmm. know all different colors Mm -hmm. but the people who do have a strong and negative reaction to that very much exist and you know I'm not entirely sure how to address that because I think it is just so rooted in fear yeah um and and I think that's the issue, right? Like, what are these people really afraid of? Uh, and I th- I think it, when it comes down to it, um, people want to blame other people for where they are, mm-hmm. and they somehow think if that there's more white people than non-white people, their lives will somehow be better. And that kind of rationale is just so difficult to even begin to understand. Do you think sometimes it's just it's not actually it's not actually about fear? It's just about some people are just ugly inside that it isn't that they're that, that it can't be traced back to something that we can empathize with, like the idea of being scared or losing something, but it's just that some people are just ugly because, you know, again, some of the things that I hear the most, most often in, in media, like analyses of, you know, white Trump voters is that they were, they're afraid that they, um, are economically disadvantaged, but when you then look at a lot of the demographics around who really voted for Trump, they are white men who are in perfectly good, high-paying, you know, like they're middle class, upper middle class. Like they, there actually really isn't anything that I would argue they have to be afraid of. They tend to live in very white communities. They're not. It's it's not you know. So so I, I guess I guess what I'm wondering is, do you think that some of the negative reactions to people of color in the, here or elsewhere has has nothing to do with fear and everything to do with just people who are ugly inside well i have a two-part response to that one is that i don't think anyone is born feeling that much hatred towards someone else i mm-hmm. think that is learned and taught right um 
and the the second part to the, that answer is that I don't think it's necessarily a disenfranchisement that makes people feel that way. I think mm-hmm. you're absolutely right. There are mm-hmm. a lot of people who have lived a very privileged lives, and I think that's that's the key word: mm-hmm. privilege. Mm-hmm. Right mm-hmm. to to acknowledge your privilege can be a not just a scary thing, but a um, a threatening thing. And I don't think people like to acknowledge their privilege. And I yeah. think that's where that aggression comes mm-hmm. from. How dare you say that I have to give up something that I have so that right. someone else right. can be equal, can have equality, right? Mm-hmm. Like, I don't want to give up my nice house and the fact that I got into the college that I wanted to and got the job that I wanted to and get the handshakes that that I feel I deserve because of the color of my skin. No, I got that because of my merit. People right. don't want to look in a mirror and acknowledge yeah. their privilege. Or they, or they don't want to they don't want to believe that that life is not a meritocracy. I, I want to know like in a <laughs> in a race war, what side would you be on? I don't have a choice. <laughs> <laughs> And, you know, of course, like, I'm a woman, I'm a religious minority, I'm an ethnic minority. Uh Like, I'm going to be with the, I don't know, the the not white people because I'm not white. (laughs) Tanner? Uh, I'm going to be on team uh, NPR whiteness. (laughs) <laughs> okay, so I'm not going to be fighting for white supremacy, but I'm going to be with uh, the white people who just uh, uh, want people of color and everybody to get along. Okay. Yeah. All right. Tanner, um, can I ask, where where did that race war question idea thing come from? Oh, it's from me. That's from Anna. She said... No, 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 no. I mean, like, in the last episode. When oh, it was from me. <coughs> no, well, was you, it from you? You, 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 you had said in your own, you know, personal thoughts about your identity that... Uh, it was the race war question that led you to, or, or to well, it was it was, it was yeah, clarifying, right. when, yeah, I was a, clarifying. when I was a kid. No, what what the the, <laughs> the quote was from a book by Rianne Milan uh, called "My Trader's Heart" about South Africa. Uh, in that uh, he's talked about a lot of white liberals in South Africa talked about class, talked about class, talked about class, in much the same way that that uh, and they talked about poverty, much in the same way that the you know your Bernie Sanders liberals do here, um, and. He he posited in the book, it was his idea, it wasn't mine, that a lot of white people want to make it about poverty and class because in a class war you can change sides and in a mm-hmm. race war you can't. Mm-hmm. That's right. So that was, okay. and which is especially okay. not a completely different factor over in South Africa because here white liberals are still, you know, part of the power structure and have something to do in South Africa once black people took over and were the majority, like what use is a white liberal then? Um, and white liberals had a particular existential crisis over there that we didn't necessarily have here. Not yet. Not yet. <laughs> Not yet. <laughs> we'll see how NPR Team NPR Whiteness does. Uh, well, thank you, listeners, for weighing in, as always. We have a phone number, so give us a call if you want to join the B-side. The number is 612-888-RACE. Again, 612-888-RACE. Of course, if you feel like writing, you can still email us or send us a voice memo. The address is showaboutrace at gmail.com. Keep your podcast machine active. (laughs) The main episode is dropping very shortly. 